We are continuing today in our consideration of Jesus Christ, and I am willing and glad to do this. I'm sure you guys are too. When Jesus is properly considered, it causes a stirring of faith. He's our our example. Haven't you found it profitable to look at Him? He is the one who has shown the world what living for God is for. And I am thankful to know Him. Today we will consider the truth that Jesus, who was once equal with God... For never, forever now has become the servant of God. He humbled himself and he declared, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. And I want us to think about this word servant. What does it mean to be a servant? Now, this is a, probably more relevant now than it ever has been since the dawn of creation it's that we live in a society that has elevated the individual. So what exactly is a servant? The world needs to hear this. A servant is a person that attends to another for the, for the purpose of performing menial offices for him. This is the dictionary definition. In other words, lowly and abased tasks like cleaning the toilet... Or is anyone who is employed by another for such offices or for other labor and is subject to his command? The word is correlative to master. Servant differs from slave as the servant's subjection to a master is voluntary and a slave's is not. Every slave is a servant, but not every servant is a slave. So uh, let's see. Let's go ahead and see how the Scripture uses this word "servant." Let's dig a little bit deeper into it. In Scripture, a slave, a bondman, one purchased for money, and who was compelled to serve till the year of jubilee, one purchased for a term of years. This, this is how the word is used in Scripture now. The the subject of a king as the servants of David, or the servants of Saul, or the Syrians became servants to David. Or how about this one? A person who voluntarily serves another or acts as his minister, as Joshua was the servant of Moses, and as the apostles, the servants of Christ. And so Christ himself is called in Isaiah 42.1, the servant. See, Moses is called the servant of the Lord. So now we're getting now we're getting a little bit closer to what this word this word means. Or how about this one? A person employed or used as an instrument in accomplishing God's purposes of mercy and or wrath. So Nebuchadnezzar was the servant of God. You mean to tell me that someone can be a servant and not know that they're a servant? Somebody can serve God and not know it? How about this one? I I, I really like this definition. One who yields obedience to another. The saints are called the servants of God, or we are the servants of righteousness, or the wicked are called the servants of sin. That which yields obedience... Or acts on subordination like an instrument. 
See, don't we all yield to something, brethren? Don't, doesn't mankind yield itself to something? Does that mean that we're all servants? Well, we're we're, we're going to get to that later here in a minute. How about this one? One that makes painful sacrifices in compliance with the weakness or wants of others. Painful sacrifices. I, I do like that definition. I'm reminded of our the words of our brother Paul to the Corinthians twice over. He says, I would very gladly spend and be spent for you. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings of which we also suffer. So what's what's the conclusion to these things? There is no doubt then that a denial of self-will is involved in serving. Serving is a selfless act. Just as kings had subjects called servants, and just as slaves who were involuntary servants, all of them had this in common, the absence of being self-willed. You cannot be a servant and be self-willed. It is never proper then for the servant to place the emphasis on himself or even on the service rendered, but on the master being served. For that is the purpose behind the servitude to begin with. Actually and ultimately, there really is no such thing as being self-willed in the sense that men consider self-will. And I want to talk about this for a minute. Here's a question for you all. Can the will of, of a man be influenced without his knowledge? And if it can be so easily influenced in such a way, or in any way for that matter, how then is it truly free? You see, man was actually made to serve. The scriptures say that we were created for God, for His glory, in Isaiah 43, 7. He made us, we are His, plus, plus He purchased us with blood. So we are doubly His. We are all servants made to serve. And regardless of who we serve, everybody serves a master. Either we serve God or we serve the devil. Either we serve sin or we serve righteousness. Either God is our father or Satan is our father. And as Christ said, the lusts of your father ye will do. Ye will do. Our choice then, whether to serve God or Satan, depends not only on who we are willing to serve, but what is influencing our will. Of course, Satan has a way of deceiving men through the deceitful lusts of the flesh in a way that they believe that they are actually operating under and serving their own interests when in fact they are merely serving what he wants them to do. Nevertheless, because deceived men believe themselves to possess free will, and operate by the dictations of the law of sin and death written in their members, the scripture speaks of those who are self-willed. And I confess it took, it took a while for me to see this, but just exactly who is man willing to serve without the involvement of God? Well, the scriptures are clear that all chose not to serve God and no one sought God. 
Now, this is confusing because men were made in the image of God. Men were made to serve God. Their will then should have been by default to serve God. But because nobody did, it was evidence that there was something influencing what men ultimately wanted and wanted and sought after. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say that bondage is actually bondage. Therefore, unless God gives a person ears that hear and eyes that see and opens their eyes and makes that person willing in the day of his power, they will not be willing to follow him. Therefore, it is not of him who wills, but of God who shows mercy. But how would God show mercy? Well, today I'm talking about Jesus who was sent. He had to become a servant. He had to learn obedience and humble himself. God had to send Christ into the world as a substitution sacrifice that we might be made willing in the day of his power. And the Son has the authority to make alive whosoever he will. Now, even though Jesus and God are one, and in perfect agreement with one another, Jesus, in a sense, possessed, in a sense, hear me out, a separate will from God while he was on the earth. It's the obvious enough by the very words of Jesus when he said, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And I will establish this further as it's worth our consideration and servitude. Consider that God the Father did not have to endure the contradictions of sinners against himself on the earth as a man, but Jesus did. God desired this for Jesus, but it was an unpleasant experience for his son. God did not have to humble himself and come down, but Jesus did. It is never said that God took on the form of a servant, but Jesus did. God did not have to be made in the likeness of sinful flesh, experience pain and hunger and thirst, but Jesus did. Can you imagine a member of the Godhead, immortal, perfect, being made in weakness and setting aside his glory, being surrounded by vile, disgusting sin and unbelief up close and personal? in a state of weakness, and having to endure it patiently. You see, it was God's will that Jesus go through these things. But these things brought sorrow to Jesus. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus didn't like being around unbelief. It It wasn't his preference to be around unbelief. And we don't either. See, Jesus, he had to get away from the multitudes at times. God cannot be tempted of evil, but Jesus was tempted. God did not have the sins of the world laid on him, but Jesus was made to be sin. Jesus was cursed, forsaken of God. It was God's will that Jesus go through these things. But none of these things are pleasant things when it comes to what a person would desire for themselves personally. Talking today about Jesus being the servant of God 
and not doing his will, but the will of the Father. Now, as a word of clarification, Jesus was not tempted like we are tempted. See, the human race is by nature born of Adam. X chromosome, Y chromosome. We are born of Adam and we are born of a woman. But because sin is passed down through Adam, all in Adam are born with a sinful nature. Jesus, however, was born of a woman and born of God. He is the seed of the woman. He is the son of David. Truly, truly then, a man after God's own heart, he was not born with a sinful nature like the rest of us. Before Jesus went to the cross, he declared, For the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Jesus was never tempted in his entire life to do anything outside of the nature of God. He is one with the Father. In in other words, no part of Jesus desired to be unlike God. He possessed the Spirit without measure. The Father gave him the Spirit without measure. Now, anybody who really kind of disagrees with this is going to have to reason it out if it's possible to be given the Spirit without measure if that person has any desire within them that is fundamentally unlike God. If God would not accept an animal sacrifice that was imperfect, what makes them think that God would accept the ultimate sacrifice if it contained an imperfection of any kind? So then exactly how was Jesus tempted, you might ask? Now I understand that he may have been presented with base immorality. But even if he was, if Jesus possessed no desire for that, then how would he be tempted? And where there is no desire to sin within a person, a person cannot be tempted. So what really got what really got to Jesus? What was he really tempted with? What could Satan present with to Jesus that was irresistible speaking as a man? It's that he was tempted to do his own will instead of God's will. He was Jesus was tempted to disobey God. Just as Eve was tempted to disobey God, and she had no, she was innocent at the time that she was tempted. Even if the temptation may not have been sinful in and of itself. For example, Jesus is the creator of the heavens and the earth. How could it be unlike God to create, to, to create br- bread from stones? How could that be unlike God? Jesus made the stones. Jesus is the one who made the rocks. Why couldn't he make the bread? Why couldn't he feed himself? Unless God had told him not to turn it into bread, you see. And you see, Jesus happened to be hungry. He had just finished fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And afterward, the scripture writes, he was in hunger. Now, we could certainly preach a a whole entire message and then on the temptations of Jesus, but I would digress. The point is is that unless some part of Jesus' will differed from the will of God, he could have never been truly tempted. But the Scripture reveals that Christ, in fact, was touched with the feeling of our infirmity. He knows what it's like to feel the tug of competing influences. He was in all points tempted as we are, 
yet without sin. I'm talking today about Jesus becoming the servant of God and not doing his own will, but the will of the Father. Jesus asks the Father in Gethsemane if it were possible to let that awful cup pass from him. The one who had never felt remorse, who had never been, who had, who had never displeased the Father one time, was about to be laden with the aggregate sin of humanity. I mean, why would Jesus, who had never felt the guilt of sin, who hated unrighteousness and could not stand the unbelief of men, why would he desire to have the sin of the world dumped on him and to be made a curse? Why would anybody desire to be made that way? He was in agony. The scripture said that he, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. But Jesus submitted himself to the will of God and prayed, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. See, he, Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Jesus showed us what it means to be the servant of the Most High God. He showed us what obedience looks like. He came not to do his own will, but the will of God who sent him. Jesus, as God's servant, sought not his own glory. He said, I honor my Father. So much that he never, he, Jesus never one time spoke one word of his own accord. He kept his Father's commandments. He blessed the Lord, and, and God was well pleased with Jesus. Now, it's important to consider that if Jesus never did his own will, but only what his Father wanted, what makes men think that Jesus will do things according to their will? What person thinks that Jesus is here to satisfy their will over God's will? Or worse yet, what makes men think that if Jesus did not do his own will, but God's will, that they can live their life according to their own will and not God's will? But Christ said, I must be about my Father's business. Now, as difficult as it were at times for Jesus to be confronted with the will of God, the personal benefit and satisfaction gained from doing so was always well worth the effort for Jesus. And I want to emphasize this, okay? Jesus said that unto them, his disciples, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. The agony that Jesus experienced in the garden was very real and painful, but the second that Jesus submitted to the will of God, he received strength to finish the work that God had given him to do. It was satisfying for Jesus to serve God. His voice resonates in the Psalms. I delight to do thy will, O my God. And, and this was despite the shame of the cross. Jesus was delighted to do the will of the Father and despising the shame at the same time. Consider all the events that happened afterward and consider the countenance of our Savior. Consider Him being led away, beaten, mocked, tested, tempted, tried. It never again from that point says that He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. He submitted to the will of God and God gave him strength to the finish.
There was a joy that was set before him, and because of it, he endured faithfully the death of the cross. This means that if you serve God by faith and do his will, it will never leave you at an ultimate disadvantage. In fact, those who submit to the will of God, by doing so, you will find that God will give you strength and satisfaction that you have never and will never experience ever anywhere else. Amen. Well, what about you? Are you willing to go through the fire because it's God's will? Are you willing, like Jesus, to lay down your life for the Lord, even when the situation appears to be unfair, undeserved, or chafes against your new nature? Remember, whose will we shall do shall determine our eternal destination. Jesus said, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. I thank God for the example that Jesus left us and his faithfulness in setting our priorities straight to consider God's will. It's, everything, is about the, everything is about God's will. If we're created for God, then everything we do is about God. It's not about us. Jesus showed us this. Jesus became a servant. He humbled himself to serve God. And we ought to humble ourselves and serve Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, the word that I remember the word that I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. And remember that our service to Christ is also service to one another. If Jesus, our Lord, came to wash our feet, we we ought also to wash one another. He said, you know, that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, There's, a, there's this lie that, that says that there's some sort of benefit being gained by being an individual. Individualism is just like Harold in our day. But actually, it's a robber. It's a, to, to not serve one another and to be self-centered is a robber. Just think about the things that men have done. Put, putting kingdom things... Aside for a second, think about the things that men have done by serving one another. Look at the pyramids that are in Egypt. Now, if, the, if, every, if, every, if every servant was self-centered, those pyramids would not be here today. It took, it took, uh, it took a lot of servants with uh, following the will of the master to accomplish that. And so see, we as we submit ourselves to one another... And we submit ourselves to the Lord. See, the Lord is good. The Lord is not a hard taskmaster. The, the Lord is, he's a good God. So you can submit to a good God. And see, he's, he's, he's building these things. He's showing, he's showing who he is, the principalities and powers. And he's building a, a kingdom. And we are pillars. 
We are pillars in the kingdom. I'm so thankful for Jesus, brother. And he, he saw, he saw that becoming a servant was worth it. He, like the servant who would rather remain a servant forever to take his wife and children, was pierced and became a servant forever. And he, and he didn't consider it to be a disadvantage. Christ, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house, and so God has exalted him. He said, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And And in the next chapter in Isaiah, chapter 53, he says, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. It's, it's, it's worth it to serve the Lord. Amen.